I want to share with you about a topic in the scriptures that I think it's very important for us to understand, which is the understanding the church as the bride of Christ. I want to dive in there and look at what the scriptures teach us about the church being the bride of Christ. Now, beginning in January, these are the messages that we focused on that really dealt with our communion with the Lord. We talked about abiding in Christ, learning that we can't be productive, we can't have a resolution that will stick unless we first make a commitment to focus on Christ, to abide in Him, to spend time praying. Secondly, we talked about the need for prayer and how to communicate effectively, and and we talked about some of the blocks that may stand in the way of our prayer life. And then last week, we we talked about the gift of godly sorrow, how God gives us a sorrow that doesn't lead to death, but instead a sorrow that leads us to repentance, that awakens us to the reality that there's a second chance and that there's hope in Jesus. How many are thankful for godly sorrow? So good, right? It's medicine. Today, as we continue, I want to focus on the bride of Christ, what the Bible says about the church in regards to this, what it means. Now, yes, this is one of the topics that when I first came across and when I heard a preacher preach about it, I was kind of uncomfortable, you know? It's like, what? I'm the bride of what? <laughs> what you say? I'm bride of nothing, right? <laughs> right? It's not something we typically, if we're unaware of what the Scripture says, something that we may be uncomfortable with, like so many worship services sometimes. You know, some of us guys, if we're unaware of some of the things that the Bible says about being the bride of Christ, we may not understand exactly why we sing certain things. I am your beloved. What? Um, who's beloved? Right? And your love is extravagant. Oh, man. It's becoming difficult to worship in here. Or... You dance over me while I'm, I am unaware. It's like he's dancing over. What? You know, there's a song in Spanish that says, Yo soy la niña, la niña de tus ojos. I'm the little girl. It means pupil, but we don't really. I am the little girl, the little girl of your eyes. So I'm like, look, I'm not worshiping that one. <laughs> Listen, right? <laughs> Some of these things are, are, you know, what is it talking about? But really... We need to identify and we need to understand what this means. And I think it's beautiful and it's wonderful. And it's going to fill us with with life and with living hope to understand what it means when God calls the church, you and I, his bride, the bride of Christ. Now, if you go with me to Revelations chapter 19, I want to begin reading there. But before we read there, I just want to kind of give you a little bit of, of the background and what's happening here. John is the writer of this book. And this is not John. Some people have asked me this question, so I don't want to take it for granted. There are two different Johns, really, that are uh, dominant in scriptures. There's John the Baptist, and he was there as a prophet who prepared the way for Jesus to come, right? He was baptizing people. And then there's John the disciple who lived around the same time, and he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. And the writer of the Gospel of John was the disciple of Jesus Christ. He also wrote three incredible letters. uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. And uh, I love what Brother Dallas uh, said to me. When you read 1 John, uh, you'll notice that almost every verse uh, ends with a statement or or there's a thought for every verse. It's incredibly written and it's powerful. I encourage you to read 1 John. It's 
really short book, uh, but it's really packed with a lot of good stuff. But John wrote those letters, and John also wrote the Gospel of John, and John is the writer of Revelation. In Spanish, we would call that book Apocalipsis, because it's speaking about the end times, so revelations of the end time. And Revelation itself is a book of vision, right? John is taken to this place in the Spirit, and he's seen things that he's never seen before, right? God is revealing things to him, and the guy is trying to describe in human words the heavenly things that he's seeing. It's, it's kind of complicated, right? He's finding himself in, in the midst of incredible, angelic, and heavenly revelation, and things that are to come, things that he hadn't seen, and he's trying to describe it to us, and he pens down this incredible revelation. When you look at the Gospel of John, you see that, or the Revelation, the, the book of Revelation written by John, you'll find that there Jesus is declared totally as fully God. John says, and I looked to see who was speaking to me. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And he describes them as the same Jesus who revealed himself to Daniel pre-incarnate, right? Jesus, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. John talks about Jesus as being fully God. Second, we see that John speaks of the church as represented as seven spirits. Or there we see the revelation that the churches have a certain personality. And there John speaks about the reward that there is to be had for those who persevere. There God speaks about, uh, John speaks about the judgment of God over our sinful world and speaks about future things to come. Most importantly, we see the redemption. We see the redemption of God's people in the midst of everything happening in, in, in the end times. So now... In Revelation chapter 19, we're actually about to dive in into the sweet part, right? This is the end of the story. This is the happily ever after, if I could describe it that way. At the judgment over Babylon has taken place, right? And now the people of God, the church, is before Jesus. And this is the, the glorious, a glorious point in Scripture, something that we're all looking forward to. And John's getting this revelation, and he's writing it down for us. And it reads this way, Revelation 19, 1 on down. It says this, and we'll describe some verses as we go, and then we'll dive into the Scriptures there that way. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries or immorality or fornication. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, I want, you to dis- I want you to understand what's happening here. It says, number one, verse, the first verse. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. Uh, I don't, maybe there's two or three of us who, pl- who watch football sometimes, right? Maybe throw a football or two. Some deflated ones, some so not def- Okay. One of the things that I find interesting is they talk about the Seattle Seahawks, and they say that when you play there, the opposing team has a really hard time playing with them because the crowd is so loud that the quarterback can barely give cues. Now, this is just a stadium. This compares not, this is very minute to what John is seeing here. He said, I heard the shouts of a mighty multitude. This is a deafening sound. 
an overwhelming sound, and they're giving glory to God. They're declaring God is all-powerful, God is worthy of praise, and he's worthy of all the honor. And this is why. The reason why he's worthy of praise is because, uh, notice, for true and just are his judgments, number one, because he's perfect in justice, and he is absolute truth. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Talking about Babylon. As we describe Babylon in scripture, Babylon represents a spirit, right? A spirit that takes over the world, a spirit that basically has controlled the world. It also represents kingdom. It represents the literal kingdom of Babylon that subdued Judah. It also represents Rome, right? And the way that Rome acted towards the church with all its persecution. But it's also speaking about a spirit that has taken over or a demonic force that has taken over the whole world, right? The Bible says that those who don't belong to Christ are under a spirit of disobedience. So Babylon speaks to everything that rejects God. Are you with me so far? And those things will stand in judgments because of all the wickedness and the things that have taken place, the spirit itself, but also those who are under the dominion of Babylon will be judged. And the people are God are praising God because finally that oppressive spirit, that demonic spirit and all those under uh, that spirit will be brought to justice before God. So they're celebrating God because he's perfect in justice. Now let's read on. It says also, and the smoke from her goes on forever and ever. Very important. So Babylon is judged, but it's judged eternally. Not just for a moment. It is completely gone. Now, what it said about Sodom and Gomorrah, this is interesting. I heard Dr. Rutland preach about this and researched it a bit about this, that Sodom and Gomorrah is one of the theories is that it was around an area that we considered the Dead Sea. You ever heard of the Dead Sea? Why do we call it the Dead Sea? Huh? There's no life there, right? There's no life. Everything's dead around it. And, and someone once said uh, that, you know, this is why I don't believe in the accuracy of Scripture. Because if, when, peop, when Lot went to Sodom and Gomorrah, this is supposed to be lush and filled with life. But there's no life here. There's nothing here that speaks of life. But the right interpretation is, is that God's judgment is so, so strong that when it comes, there's evidence. Are you with me? It's not that the Bible isn't accurate. It's that God's judgment is it's incredible. Right. We have this tendency to see God in his mercy, but do we see him in his perfect justice? And we need to understand this reality of God. That when he says, and Babylon is judged forever and ever, is that sucker is gone and the smoke still rises to the point that we can see where God judged. All right. Now let's go on. That one won't preach on TV too much. Chapter verse four, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of a rushing water and like loud peals of thunder. Ain't talking, you know, I'm from Dominican Republic. I've been under a couple thunderstorms, and I don't know if you've ever been in a thunderstorm where it felt like the house shook, like everything in you was like, Ugh, right? Seen Lion King where does it say Mufasa? Ugh. Say it again, Ugh. right? Sometimes you know thunder. Sometimes thunder is so incredible. If you're at the right place when you hear that, it puts the fear of God in you. And John is saying, I heard the multitude cry out as if it were roaring water. Anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? 
or Niagara Falls. What did it feel like? Loud, right? Scary. Make you think twice about getting close to that, right, to that walkway. I've never, I want to go there, but what I hear from people is like, it's amazing. You wonder if you want to get close to that thing. It's incredible. And this is how loud John is hearing the praises of God in the heavens. This is how loud John is hearing the praises of God in the heavens. Think about that. The 24 elders and the four living creatures. Now, the 24 elders, there's debate about what that means, but for sure it represents the 24 elders are representative of the church, the whole church of God. And the four living creatures are angelic beings that worship God and are worshiping him in the fulfillment of all that is taking place. Who was, so those who were seated on the throne, and they, they cried out, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of a rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty, he reigns. And let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So now, again, the roar, the people roaring in praise and worship are saying, this is a reason to praise God. He is king. He is king. He's Lord over all. And this is another reason to praise God. Because the wedding of the Lamb has come. It's time for the wedding of the Lamb. Pay attention. Does it say the wedding of the bride? It says the wedding of the lamb. Pay attention. It could have described the wedding of the lion of Judah. But it's describing Jesus as the lamb. It's very key. The wedding of the lamb. And now as we move forward. Uh, where am I at? Okay, that's where I'm moving forward. Then it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory for the wedding of the lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Who, who's made the bride ready? She's made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Another scripture, another translation would say was granted to her, right? Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Again, there's an encouragement to praise God. The wedding is the wedding of the lamb. And praise is giving to God, not to the bride. The bride is radiant. And because the bride is radiant, God is praised, okay? Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. Now remember that in Matthew 22, the Bible, Jesus speaking, gives us a parable that this father prepared a a wedding for his son. And he went to all the somebodies, all the specials. And he says, hey, come to this incredible wedding. And they all rejected him, right? And so instead, he says what we have written on, on the wall here, go into the highways and the byways into the highways and the hedges, and go look for them. Go look for the, for the misfits, you know? Go look for those who, who are rejected, the downtrodden, those who don't belong, and invite them to come in, right? There's this, and so, again, here is this illustration of the wedding, and the Bible says, blessed are those who are rejected, misfits, those who are downtrodden, those who have been, who have been invited to this wedding. Aren't you glad to be a part of his kingdom today? And then it says, These are the true words of God. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. In other words, 
this is going to take place. John, this vision that you have, this is going to take place. And he's encouraging them because basically he's saying no matter what you're going through, no matter what, what the church is suffering, these are the true words of God. Jesus has triumphed and the church will triumph in Christ. And one day you will be with him in glory, celebrating in a banquet. This is the true words of God. And John is so moved that he makes the mistake that probably I would have made. And he fell down to try to worship this angel. And the angel said, it's interesting. Here is John caught up in glory and still there's idolatry there, right? Um, you know, obviously just John, not any of us here. But I, at this, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. So now it gives us a description here of prophecy and of angels and our relationships to, to the angels. We're not like them in form, but we're like them in service. The angel says, don't worship me because I'm serving God just like you're serving God. We're equal in that manner. And then he says, I am only bearing witness of Christ just like you're bearing witness of Christ. That is the spirit of prophecy. It testifies of Jesus. Can I give you a word about the prophetic anointing? You know, for those who say that they speak, uh, uh, they have a word from God, or when you feel like you hear a word from God, or, 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 you know, when it comes to prophecy, this is vital. Prophecy will always testify about Jesus. Prophecy will always give glory to Jesus. It will always, always exalt Jesus. Blessed are those who are invited. Uh, and so, and, and uh, these are the true words of God. Speak of the triumph of Christ and the triumph of the church. The angel refuses worship because we're in equal service unto the king. It says, now let's, let's, let's look at the significance of the bride. Together, let's look at the significance and what this means for us. Number one. Looking at all this scripture, this is something that we can't miss. Jesus is the center. Jesus is the center. So understanding that we are the bride, biblically speaking, means that we understand, according to scripture, that Jesus is the centerpiece of the entire ceremony. Let me ask you this question. Is Jesus at the center of your life? Let me rephrase that. The next slide. Is Jesus the priority of your life? When you wake up in the morning, are the desires of Jesus what move you? Or are you moved by your own desire? Now, Rebecca and I don't do cable because ESPN will be idol worship in my home. I'm not judging my brothers in Christ. I'm just telling you I got issues, right? So listen, but... When I go to a hotel, sometimes we just sit and we'll surf through the channels. And we caught once in a while this show that's pretty popular, was popular. It's called Bridezilla. Anybody ever heard of the show Bridezilla? Bridezilla. It's, it's a show that deals with this bride who is so consumed with her wedding day that she becomes irate. She berates people who are around her, treats them terrible. And her justification is, this is my day. It should be about me. Everything has to be perfect, right? And, and it's terrible because this show is actually celebrating the fact that this girl looks foolish and she's ruining her day. No matter how beautiful she looks, no matter how perfect the day turns out, according to her will, it's not going to be great because nobody's going to be celebrating with her. Right. The reality of the matter is. Her friends are probably going to be like, well, I'm just glad that this day is over. You know, 
Because the girl has bought into the lie that it's just about her. Now, is it about her? Absolutely. She plays a significant role in the wedding, but it's not just about her. I wonder if we as a church have bought into the same lie. Do we understand that Christianity is about Jesus? That he's at the center? And that our our relationship based on Christ is not based on our desires, but it's based on his desires. Do you understand that Jesus never asked for anyone to invite him over? He was never waiting just, boy, I wonder if I can follow someone so that I can bless them. Never in the Bible do you find Jesus following someone so that he can bless them. Instead, he makes the invitation. If you want to be my disciples, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. It's totally different. That says, you're going to have desires that are contrary to my will. And in order for you to follow me, you have to pick up your cross, die to yourself, and follow me. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Not that God will bless us in what we're doing but that we would know the ways of God, that we would walk in what he's already blessed. Many times as a pastor, I hear some prayer requests that aren't, you know, they're not really that good. And I don't know that I, because I can't pray those things because it wouldn't be godly. It wouldn't be compassionate for me to pray the things that people ask me to pray for. I told you about the young man at the basketball court that we were playing. He said to me, you know, I, I, man, I'm in, man, I do bad things. I, I go into homes and I rob people and I steal, but I ask God's blessing. So you know, I always ask God's blessing when I go and do it so that he will protect me. So if you could pray for me. You, you do what? <laughs> it's one of those moments where you're trying not to laugh, you know, but it becomes increasingly difficult. It's like, what? What did you say? But oftentimes some of our prayer requests sounds like that. Some of the things that we ask God may sound like that. You know, if you're like me, we're saying, God, give us... Give us health. And then maybe the Lord is saying, I want to give you health, son. Let's talk about your diet. When we pray, God, heal our lungs. So I want to heal your lungs. Let's talk about the cigarette. You know, oh, God, do this for me. And God may say, okay, well, how about this area? Not that God doesn't want to answer those things. And again, I'm not judging you. There are issues that God's dealing with me. But I'm saying that if God blessed us every time we ask for a blessing, he may just bless us all the way to hell. Right? That wouldn't be blessing. That would be a curse. To ask God to bless us in our disobedience, that's actually asking God, why don't you just hand me over in my depravity? I don't want that. Not for you, not for me. God cannot bless disobedience. And when we make, this paradigm has to shift. We don't come to church to get a blessing. We come to church to get Jesus, to bless Jesus. It needs to shift. Now, does God bless us? Praise God, he does. Such a good father. He always provides And does he want us to seek his blessing? Of course he wants us to seek his promises. We have not because we ask not, the Bible says, but in balance. The blessing can never become greater than the giver. Are you with me so far? You still love me? Still going to invite me over for dinner sometimes? It's like, well, pastor, according to that thing, you prayed where God said, pay attention to your diet. (laughs) Are you with me? Even she likes it. Look at that. I got an audience. We have to, we have to understand that Jesus must be the, the center, the core of our lives. Is Christ at the center of our lives? It is the wedding of the Lamb, not the wedding of the bride. It's the wedding of the Lamb because He's at center, and it's the wedding of the Lamb because He paid the price. 
Notice, it's not the wedding of the Lion of Judah. It's the wedding of the Lamb. What did the Lamb do? The Lamb sacrificed himself to provide for every hors d'oeuvre, to provide for every takeaway at your wedding, to provide for the mantle that will lay across that beautiful table, to provide for every wine that you will drink, every piece of meat that you will have at that banquet. The Son of God has provided for your salvation, your mercy, your grace, all that you need for life and godliness. The Lamb of God has paid the price. Isn't he good? He's paid the price. It is the Lamb, the wedding of the Lamb. So the question we have to ask ourselves, is Christ centered in our life? Is he the priority of our lives? Secondly, the wedding day represents the day that we will meet him face to face. It's the day that we will meet him face to face. The angel says to John, and these things are true. These things will take place. And John is overjoyed at that reality. Let me just, let's ask us this question. Are we still looking forward to the day that we meet him? Do we still live with this urgency awaiting Jesus Christ? Just, we would just, I want you to think about that with me. Do you still have an anticipation, a great anticipation for the day when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ? One of the things that I think, one of the reasons I think the church is hurting, and if I can say this humbly, one of the reasons why I think we're not overcoming as, as we should is because we don't keep eternity in mind. This life is but a moment. And God intends for you and I to keep eternity in mind. If I know that Jesus is coming soon, let me tell you something. It's going to affect the way I parent and the way I treat my children when I keep that in mind. It's going to affect the way I treat my wife, the way I treat the world that surrounds me. It's going to affect the urgency I have to share the good news. Are you with me? It's going to affect the way that I handle my finances. Why? Because I'm living in great expectation that he's returning. Ask yourself that question. Let's ask ourselves that question. Are we anticipating with great expectation that wedding day? Well, if you're getting married, you know that you save. You make great sacrifices for that wedding day, right? People do. Are there sacrifices? Are there sacrifices right now? Sister Chris, is Sister Chris Burtuck here? Where is she? Chris, would you? She needs some prayer here. Are there, if you would go to my office, are there at this, are there evidences in your life that you're anticipating his return? And the last thing that I want to share with you is this, okay? Keep with me, all right? God is moving. That's good. Last thing I want to share with you is this. The bride. Let's talk about the bride. The Bible says that the bride is radiant because she has been granted Garments, linens, and because the, those linens represent the righteous deeds of the saints. Okay? Now talk to me. What do you see there in that scripture? The bride has been given linens. Do you get that? She has been given something. She has been granted something. And yet at the same time, the same scripture says that this that has been granted, it's also the righteous deeds of the saints. Let me describe what the linens represent. The linens represent both the grace of God. Are you with me? The grace of God. How many of you earned the grace of God? Anybody earned the grace of God? Do not raise your hand. 
please. Nobody's earned the grace of God. We're all sinners, incapable of paying the price for salvation. But God has given us this incredible linen of salvation. And this grace dresses us with his glory. But listen, when we receive the grace of God, now let me, what people really, what's grace and mercy? What's the difference? Mercy is unmerited favor, receiving that which we don't deserve, right? But grace to me is like this big umbrella that we're under, covering God's blessing, his peace, his joy, his favor. All of that stuff falls under the grace of God. All the good stuff from God, that's his that's his grace, just covering the grace of God. You have been given the mantle of God's grace. But when we drink in the grace, eat in the grace, rejoice in the grace, are changed by the grace, are given a new heart by the grace of God, something happens. The grace of God produces fruit. Are you with me? For the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. Titus chapter 2, verse 15, I believe, or something like that. It's Titus chapter 2 for sure. It says, the grace of God has appeared. In other words, God's grace has been given to us. And now when we receive that grace, you know what it, it does? The grace of God, if we really receive the grace of God, you, you and I will find that his grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It teaches us to say no to the things of this world. And it teaches us to live a pure life as we wait for the blessed hope of our glorious Lord appearing. The last question we got to ask ourselves is this. What are we doing with the grace of God? What are we doing with the linens of his grace that he's provided? Because the true grace of God is transformative. The true grace of God will break us and would allow us to see the reality of how needy we are of the Savior and how desperate we are of repentance. And the true grace of God would encourage us to live lives that are honoring before God. We're going to fall short for sure. We're not going to be perfect. Absolutely not. But the grace of God keeps us on fire to keep trying. The grace of God reminds us that there's an advocate that intercedes for us day and night. The grace of God refuses to let us quit in our sin. That's the true grace. That's the true grace of God. Cheap grace. Cheap grace says, well, you know, it's okay. You can repent later. But it's not really true. Not when we take grace for granted that way. The reality is, here's a scripture that's not commonly preached. Hebrews chapter 10 says this. If you continue to sin deliberately, what sacrifice is left? If we continue to live in sin, what sacrifice is left? If Sodom and Gomorrah was judged, how much more us that have trampled on the blood of of Christ. That's a tough scripture. It's a very tough scripture. And I don't believe that the Hebrew writer is trying to lead us with a, a lead of condemnation because he's the writer of Hebrew is the one that says the blood of Christ sprinkles us clean, makes our conscience squeaky clean. No condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? Hebrew says that his blood cleanses us clean, even our conscience. So he's not trying to give us condemnation, but making us sober of the reality. If we take for granted the linen of God's grace and not drink deep of God's grace to the point that it transforms us, what sacrifice is left for us? What sacrifice is there left? We've got to ask ourselves, what are we doing with this grace that we received? What are we doing? 
We are the bride of Christ. Why? Because we are a people preparing ourselves for the wedding of the Lamb, awaiting the day that we will meet him face to face. And though we go through hell and high water here, we know that he overcame. And because he overcame, we will overcome. Amen. Would you stand with me today? Thank you, sir. The bride of Christ. Praise God. Lord, we live in preparation. Every day preparing ourselves for your return. That's our desire. To keep you center in our lives. To live in expectation of the day that's coming. And to drink so deep of your grace that it transforms us from the inside out. Thank you, God, for this covenant relationship that we're in. That you draw me so close and that our earthly languages cannot describe the unity that we'll have with you. That you use this symbolism to try to describe to us how united we are going to be with you. And Lord, I thank you that your spirit is calling us to draw closer. There are some of us here who are ending a fast today. And as I was was worshiping, I felt strongly to just encourage you that God still wants us to keep a heart consecrated, separated for him. He still wants us to keep a heart humbly submitted to him. Whatever we need to do to make that happen, let's make that happen. So maybe you're here today and you're saying, Pastor, I need prayer because I realize that my life hasn't been Christ-centered. I come to church, but I realize that Christ hasn't been the center of my life. The center of my life has been my problems. Today, I don't want to give my problems the throne of my heart. I don't want to give my life the throne of my heart. I don't want to give my desires the throne of my heart. I want to give Jesus the throne of my heart. I want him to be front and center. If that's you right now, would you come up to the altar? We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to pray with you. Would you not hesitate at this point? Say, I want Jesus to be center in my life. If the altar workers, Molly, if you would come up at this time. Nate, if you would join this man right here at the altar workers. You're here and you're saying, I want Jesus to be center in my life. Would you come up right now? Let's pray. Maybe you're here and you're saying, Pastor, I'm a believer. I love the Lord. But you know what? I've lost the joy of waiting for his return. I want to wait for his return. I want to live my life. I want to do my finances. I want to do my marriage. I want to do parenting with this expectation that Jesus is returning. If that's you, would you come up right now? Say, I want this expectation of his return to be alive in my heart again. That's you. Would you come up to the altar right now? Right now. Praise God. The last thing, maybe you're here and like me, you can testify. There's been time where I've taken the grace of God for granted. No more. No more. I want to drink deep of the grace of God. So much so much so that it transforms me from the inside out. I don't want to have cheap grace. I want to have linens that are radiant because he's given them to me. And because we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. You're here and you're saying, I want to live a life that's worthy, that's honoring the Lord. 
If that's you, would you come up to the altar right now? We love to pray with you. We love to pray with you. Okay, can I pray a blessing now? You guys can go ahead and begin to pray for all those who are here. And I just want to pray a blessing over you guys as we close today. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you paid a high price before we can do anything for ourselves or even seek you. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that we would all drink deep of your grace. I thank you that we would park in that place of prayer until we, Father God, understand that you love us. You love us. And that you're calling us to draw closer to you. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for your great invitation to follow you. I bless your people. May your grace cover them. May your love be tangible to them. And may your spirit lead them in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you guys. God bless you guys. The altars are open if you need prayer today.